You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Alka Prathan and Ben Farley. Alka is a human rights counsel at the Guantanamo Bay Military Commissions, representing Amar al-Baluchi, one of the 9-11 accused. She was previously counterterrorism counsel at Reprieve U.S., where she represented a number of Guantanamo Bay detainees in litigation involving habeas corpus claims and conditions of detention. She also conducted advocacy and litigation on behalf of civilian victims of the drone program in Yemen and Pakistan, and has advised the U.S. government on compliance with international legal obligations. Ben is a trial attorney in Law of War Council at the U.S. Department of Defense, Military Commission's Defense Organization. He is assigned to the team representing Amar al-Baluchi as well, one of the five co-defendants of the 9-11 conspiracy case, who now face capital charges before the Military Commission of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. From 2013 until 2017, he served as a senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Guantanamo Closure at the U.S. Department of State. So, Ben, Alka, welcome to the International Spy Museum, to SpyCast. You've been in the museum before, uh, but this is the first time we get a chance to sit down and talk to you. When I met you for the first time, my, my first instinct was to say, what in the world got you into this kind of law? I mean, this is a very specific time um, to do this kind of law. I mean, it's, it's focused obviously on a lot of counterterrorism, but at the same time, um, national security-based law for both of you. Uh, so Ben, if you want to start, like, what, what drew you to doing this kind of legal representation? Well, so the specific representation that I do uh, for Mr. Albulucci is uh, sort of the result of dumb luck and happenstance, and if I'm honest, knowing Alka. Um, what drew, how I got into this initially, um, I guess, it begins with graduate school. So before I went to law school, I went to graduate school at uh, George Washington at the Elliott School of International Affairs. And he, that decision, the decision to go get that master's degree, was animated by an interest in um, foreign policy and national security. Um, and the the emphasis I had on policy really 
uh, encouraged me to go to law school uh, initially. Uh, I had no desire to be a lawyer, um, but I understood that being a lawyer or having a law degree would be a beneficial credential to doing policy work uh, in the future. Um, I ended up falling in love with law and uh, continuing to be interested in international affairs and foreign policy and national security. And so that sort of pushed me down the, the track towards national security law in the first place. Um, and then everything from the gra from graduating law school until I started working um, representing Mr. Albulucci was uh, really driven by dumb luck. Uh, I left law school without a, a position, uh, but I had the Presidential Management Fellowship finalist status. Uh, I moved back to D.C. like three days after I took the bar exam and uh, just started hustling for a job, trying to make the PMF status real. Uh, and eventually, it took about six months, but eventually I secured a position at the State Department in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Um, it wasn't a great fit for me. Uh, the, the work that I was doing was more programmatic work uh, focused uh, around rule of law in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so things that were really focused on, like training and equipping police officers and prosecutors. Uh, but from there, found my way into a rotation with the Office of Legal Advisor. And then um, I happened to be sitting in a part, like physically sitting in a part of the suite, one of the suites for the Office of Legal Advisor, where the folks who do political military affairs work. I wasn't working for them. I was working for uh, Oceans, Environment, and Science. Um, but while I was sitting in this space in what amounted to an intern desk, uh, these guys who used to work in the office of the Special Envoy for Guantanamo Closure during a period when that office was temporarily closed kept coming through to see their old attorneys to talk about ongoing issues. And I got to know these guys a little bit, and they told me that the office was going to be reopened and there would be a new Special Envoy, and they asked if I wanted to do my final PMF rotation for three months uh, working for the new special envoy, and I said yes, and um, three months turned into three and a half years, yeah. and uh, and through that process, I got to know Alka, and um, because we worked, you know, together and sometimes at loggerheads over the period of uh, of that time, and um, sounds like now, <laughs> it sounds like now, <laughs> uh, and eventually she took the job that she'll describe, and um, and encouraged me to apply for, and I think lobbied on my behalf to. Uh, get me onto the team representing Mr. Albulucci. The prover proverbial foot in the door, right? I mean, it's, it's you hear that so often is you wanted to do this job or maybe you didn't even know you wanted to do it, but you took something that kind of got you into the federal system and then you met the right people and moved through. I mean, it, it really comes down to the whole, you know, it's, in D.C. it's not who you know, it's who knows you <laughs> and who can kind of speak for you and kind of push you into the right jobs. I mean, I think we see that again and again moving through. That sounds a lot like what you experienced. I think that's absolutely right. All right. Yeah. How about you? I mean, this is, you know. I, I think it's a very, very similar in that sense, right? In in the sense that I, I grew up at a time, I mean, we all grew up, right? Like in like the 90s when international law was really um, becoming its own thing, becoming its own sort of subject matter. And um, I grew up very close to the United Nations, um, sort of metaphysically. My grandfather was at the UN for a long time. I spent a lot of time in Geneva. And um, I was really obsessed with the work of the international tribunals and um, decided to make that my specialization when I went through law school and grad school and everything else. And so my specialization really coming out of law school was human rights and humanitarian law, um, and particularly the big crimes, the crimes against humanity, the war crimes. 
Um, I never thought that I would end up um, sort of practicing that against my own government, right. <laughs> which we can talk about a little later. That was really never in my head again at all. But uh, I went into private practice for a few years after uh, after law school. Um, I went to a firm that um, did a lot of international law, albeit private, but allowed me sort of wide latitude in, um, in human rights work as well, pro bono. And so I used that to sort of keep one foot in my sort of public international law profile. And um, after I left private practice, uh, did a, you know went to a couple of NGOs where I first um, fell down the national security rabbit hole uh, in a position with the Constitution Project here in DC, where I worked for two and a half years on what was at the time um, supposed to be, and I think ended up being the most comprehensive look at US detention practices post 9-11. And I got to know a lot of people, former detainees, NGOs working in this field, Guantanamo people, um, through that. But I wanted to go back to litigation. I missed litigation. Mm -hmm. And an organization called Reprieve, which is based in the UK but represented a lot of Guantanamo detainees, hired me to open their um, US office here in DC to, um, to advance some of their habeas uh, cases. And that's actually how I met Ben, um, because we were, as he, he so eloquently put it, we worked together on a lot of cases, also worked at loggerheads because I was trying to get my guys out uh, yeah. who had been cleared for release. I didn't always want them to go where the State Department wanted them to go. Right. And so we fought a little bit over that. But um, from there, you know, you become a member of something that's sort of half-jokingly called the Guantanamo Bay Bar Association, which is all the attorneys who work, who represented detainees. And you get to know everybody on the habeas side and the commission side. So I got a call one day saying, DOD's approved funding for civilian attorneys at the military commissions. Are you interested? And I thought, I can't get any deeper into Guantanamo than the military commissions, right? right? Than like the, the CIA detainees, the Camp 7 guys. And so um, I thought, yeah, you know, like get in a sort of fake courtroom and <laughs> do some international law and let's see what we make of it. So that's how I joined the team. And then uh, we were lucky enough to bring that on uh, a little bit later. Well, we, we podcast in the past with Plato Kacharis. If you know, he was the lawyer for all the spies like Aldrich Games and Robert Hans and everybody else. And, and you look at him and, or someone like a mob lawyer where you're like, how can you possibly defend those people? But you've kind of taken that to the next level <laughs> in many respects. Well, I mean, a lot of your clients in the past have been people who are unjustly detained. Yes. And it turned out that it was mistaken identity or just wrong information. But now we're talking about the 9-11 crew. Sure. Right? The people at Guantanamo. It, I'm not going to ask you about them personally, but I'm, I wonder about pushback from friends, pushback from former associates. You work at the Pentagon. There has to be a little bit of pushback from your colleagues who are around, especially the ones who are there on 9-11 and kind of experience that. Kind of how does this, how do you go through, like, is there a lot of that involved in, in your day-to-day? -day? There's a, there, there's some, you know, I want to, first I want to react to what you said about sort of taking it to the next level. You know, in private practice, I represented Madoff's cronies. You know, it represented the government of Saudi Arabia. Like, this is sort of what we do right. in the U.S. Like we represent everyone, um, so I don't, I, you know, I don't see it really as as much of a departure at all. Obviously, there's a lot of emotion attached to it because 9/11. Right. We're all Americans. We, you know, I get that, um, but you know, I don't see it as as far outside the pale at all in terms of pushback. Certainly, there's been some. Um, we're the, like the redheaded stepchild of DOD. Um, everybody else at DOD either forgets we're there or hates us on site. Um, and we don't get a lot of, we don't have pens or 
printer ink or stuff like that because of it. <laughs> but um, personally, I have not received a whole lot of pushback. Um, and I think that's sort of maybe part of where I came from, right? Um, again, private practice, everyone sort of gets it right away. Yeah, you represent everybody. You know, that's what we do for a lot of money and you're doing it for no money. Congratulations, yeah. you. <laughs> well, I mean, theoretically, I mean, if you are a someone who cares about the Constitution or anything else, you, you understand that the only way to legitimately prosecute these guys is to allow them to have representation. You know, but I can imagine even in that case, there's just a little bit of your client is who, mm -hmm. right? I mm -hmm. mean, do you, do you have any kind of philosophy like that or hear anything from people? So I, one of the things that gave me the greatest pause before accepting the position to represent Mr. Albulucci was a concern about the reaction of you know friends, neighbors, acquaintances, family uh, to taking the job. Uh, you know, a real concern that people wouldn't see it the way that Alka described it, um, and you know would really focus on who my client is or who he's alleged to be, um, and sort of impute that to me and to Alka and the rest of the team. And I've been um, I've been really impressed and uh, somewhat surprised by the depth of civic virtue in this country among people I've never met before uh, from parts of the, you know, parts of the country that you wouldn't necessarily expect. You know, the people I grew up with, they really get it. And they get that, you know, to prosecute somebody in this country, they deserve the best and the most zealous defense that they can find. And that requires people, um, you know, Americans and sometimes employees of the Defense Department to go out and represent them. So the client that you have, plus the others that are now being, now there's a trial date we can talk about in a little bit. It's going to end up being 2021, which ish, if things are pushed back even further from that, which, you know, everyone, every you can't see it out there in Listenerville, but everyone's going to, yeah, yeah. Well. Sort of, not exactly rolling our right. eyes, but, you know, we'll see. Right, we'll, we'll see. see. By that time, it'll almost be 20 years since these individuals were arrested. Some of them in, you know, 03, 04, 05. At now we're a decade and a half since they've been arrested. And so in a broad sense, and we'll kind of narrow this down and talk specifics, but what the hell is taking so long to actually try? Because it's not like new information is coming out of the woodwork. It's not like you're in a position where um, the government needs more time to gather evidence, you would think. Um, and the military commission kind of concept has been around for now more than a decade. Now it's gone through some ups and downs. There's one step forward, two steps back when it comes to court cases and everything else. But you know, you'd think at this point we would have done something about this. So talk a little bit about why we don't. I mean, look, it's one thing to say drag this out because we can't do it. It's another thing we don't have justice. Right. Like we as an individual or we as a country have not prosecuted anyone for planning and executing 9/11. We've killed a shitload of people around the world, but the people who we've captured have not gone to jail or whatever else for this. And so I think that there's, I don't understand who's standing in the way of this. Um, we've been standing in our own way, yeah. uh, I think is the answer. I mean, and Ben can can speak more specifically about the policies and procedures of the military commissions that have, that have really tripped us up. But I mean, broadly speaking, the there was a tension that is easy to sympathize with post-September 11th, immediately post-September 11th, right. um, around, you know, we're afraid, you know, we, we, we believe we face an existential threat. We're afraid of what's coming next. We believe that there are more threats. Um, and it, it's very easy to, you know, in that immediate aftermath, understand that, look, like, 
our first thought was not justice. Our first thought was getting, you know, the perpetrators and finding out what was coming next and protecting ourselves against that. Um, what is less easy to understand, in my view, is two, three, four, five years later, we've set up, you know, and funded secret prisons around the world where these guys are being tortured. Um, and, and there's no beating around the bush with that. They were being, like, absolutely what the techniques that were being used were torture. And there's no thought to bringing them to the United States to prosecute them. There is no plan to do that. All of a sudden, in 2006, you know, they come up with this plan because we want to start closing these secret prisons. And we think, oh, okay, well, we have Gutmill open. Let's bring them here and we can put them on a show trial and do that. And then we realize we have a problem because we have tainted all of the evidence we have against these guys by holding them for so long. So that was us getting in our own way on that. You And, and the, the thing is really that you can't have it both ways, right? Like you can decide, and I would disagree with you with every fiber of law and morality and everything else, but you can decide to hold people incommunicado for years at a time and torture them for information and claim that that's uh, good for national security. You can decide that. But you can't decide to do that and then also try to have a trial that right. comports with our notion of justice. You can't have it both ways. Yeah, so I would just add to that that, you know, one of the fundamental problems here is is not just that, you know, we, the United States, you know, held people in, secretly and held them incommunicado and tortured them, which we absolutely did. But, but the problem is then to take these folks out of, you know, dungeons around the world, bring them to Guantanamo and put them on trial and then say, we're going to put you on trial for the crimes that you you allegedly committed, but we're not going to talk about any of the things that happened to you. Right. And so, you know, one of the uh, one of the fundamental problems we face is, you know, our job, particularly in a case that um, where our client is subject to the death penalty, right? So if he's convicted, he may face death. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have to do is tell in a great deal of specificity and particularity the story of what happened to him, what the United States did to him, and and make an argument that, among other things, those things, the things that we did to him, tainted the evidence, made it impossible to put him off trial, but also, you know, um, forfeited whatever moral authority we had as a country to subject him to the death penalty. We can't do that if we can't talk about what right. happened to him. Um, and well, know, in the beginning, he couldn't even have lawyers. I mean, that right. the, the, there was two court cases: uh, Rizul versus Bush and Hamdan versus Rumsfeld. That actually allowed habeas corpus to be applied, and it said that these people actually could get representation. Right. And then, of course, they dropped the Military Commissions Act right after that as kind of a way to mitigate, get around all that. And I just, I, 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 this is so long ago at this point that I'm not sure the listeners understand that the Military Commissions Act, the, the initial attempt, meant that only two thirds of the jury needed to agree to convict somebody, which is ridiculous. As you know, it has to be unanimous in civilian courts. Um, the accused are not allowed access to the evidence against them, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Which is still partially right, true. Right, which is still partially true. Um, it may be possible for the commission to consider evidence as extracted through coercive methods, which it's now still being argued still about. Still true, yeah. Um, it could be closed, potentially, which I know you're, we're going to talk about. You're still arguing about that. Mm -hmm. I, this is the one that blew my mind. I remember this. and Thank God this doesn't exist anymore. But because the accused are charged as unlawful combatants, you know, ma magical thing, not POWs under the Geneva Convention, then at the time, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld said publicly in March 2002 that even if they're acquitted on all charges, 
he doesn't necessarily have to re- release them if he doesn't want to. No, that's still true. That's oh, still, that true. still true. They, right. They've reiterated that. Oh, the that's prosecutors wonderful. have reiterated that. So what, why even have the damn trials then? I mean, if you're acquitted, I mean, it's I guess. Show. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it, 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 and of course, when President Obama becomes president, his initial thing is, we're going to bring these people to the United States. We're going to try them in real courts. And that flip-flopped. Yeah. Out and well, the window. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of all of what you're doing and how much of trying to get the word out is hurt by the secrecy that surrounds all of this and probably is the number one thing um there has to be some secrecy of course Mm -hmm. because these are national security there's sources and methods involved in this but is there overclassification are there issues where you think the public would be more on your side not i think they're just not on your side they don't know what's going on at this point if some of the secrecy was pulled away that's unnecessary so putting aside the question of whether the public would be on our side or not, the the reality is that, you know, it's – so our client was charged in 2008 uh, for the first time he was tried, charged before a military commission. And then those charges were dropped without prejudice, and then he was recharged in May of 2012, right? So the government should have been ready to go to trial in the spring of 2008, which means they should have had all their evidence together, and they should have been able to hand over that evidence to, def- you know, the then-defense attorneys, right? 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago. We're still getting discovery from the government, like within the last month. Within the last few hours, actually. (laughs) Of documents that are dated 2002, 2003, 2004, right? It it is, whether the public would be more on our side if they knew the the truth that's been veiled by secrecy, and I think they probably would be, we would be a lot further towards trial if things were not classified the way they were, they weren't treated the way they were, if the government wasn't dragging out discovery the way that it has. And I think it bears emphasis here. You know, this isn't a case where the attorneys are on the government, work for the government on the prosecution side, and the attorneys on the defense side are in private practice, right? right? Like, well, that's what I was about to say. Like, you're not Alan Dershowitz. You're not. No. You work for Thank the goodness. Pentagon, right? And we all have I mean, the same clearances. Right, yeah, we all have the we same. We have the clearances. exact same clearances as the prosecution does. But we don't get to see the same stuff yeah. that they get to see. Yeah, and a, you know, a good example of that um, is the Senate torture report, right? They they finished this report, um, you know, 2010, 2012, somewhere in that time frame, and then they decide it, there's a long drawn out fight about whether they're going to release the summary. They eventually released the summary to the public in 2014. That's the same summary that we have access to. The prosecution has been to the Hart Senate building. They've reviewed the entire document, the entire 6,000 page report. Unredacted, unredacted, all and methods, and yeah. it's got it's got a chapter on my client, right on on his capture on his torture all of that that is really important evidence for us they will not let us have it they will not let us see it that's the kind of thing that you know they sort of give and take they tell us in after the release of the executive summary that conditions of confinement in cia detention are no longer classified right but at the same time they won't give us the report they won't they'll they've classified at the secret and top secret level hundreds if not thousands of documents about the conditions of confinement in CIA detention. Um, Some of them are classified to the point where I can't tell you what their classification is. I can't even characterize them for you. Um, And that is, it's a huge barrier to having a public trial. They have now, um, and we can talk a little bit about what what we're doing right now at the military commissions, but um, they have just recently begun to invoke uh, national security privilege over certain topics, which means we can't even ask about those topics. Like, even though we have the same clearances, we can't ask about 
evidentiary evidentiary foundation for where they got some of the evidence. I and guess, that's basic law and order shit, right? Yeah. It's the idea of chain exactly. of evidence and chain of custody and all this stuff that is fundamental right. to our like, court legal system. In this where country, did you get right? this document that you claim has Amar's signature on it? Like, oh, you, we can't even ask that question because of national security privilege, but yet you want to introduce it in a death penalty case. I mean, the death penalty thing seems to complicate things significantly. I mean, I think that it's almost a mistake. In my, I mean, I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I'm vehemently against the death penalty in all cases. But it almost seems like a mistake of the government to push for the death penalty because I would think some of these accused would be more compliant to say, yeah, sure, I, I kind of did X, Y, and Z um, to not be given the death penalty. I mean, not yours. I'm not saying you're obviously yeah, I mean, not going to say. Without representing but, what they would yeah. say. I mean, I think, I think it's certainly true that the government has made a mistake in trying to charge death because the standard of discovery in death is very, very high. We get basically anything we, the defense, thinks is relevant and material to the case. And so they have fought us on that, invoking classification, invoking national security privilege. That's why this has taken so long, right? We just now, in the past year, started getting vital discovery about their time in CIA detention. But um, but at the same time, they can't really argue with the standard that we're entitled to that. Right. So. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud, Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Has anyone even talked about what happens? Let's say, let's say KSM is convicted. Sorry, Khalid Muhammad is convicted. Is there an appeals process from the military commission? Does it go to the Supreme Court? Because every death penalty case has multiple appeals. That's why they take so long. Where does this go from the military commission? And when it gets to the Supreme Court, are there different rules? All of a sudden, is a civilian court? Are they saying, can you just go and say, I didn't get anything? And then the court going, that's bullshit. And, you know, nine, nothing, send it back. Has anyone thought about this? <laughs> I mean, we think about it. Yeah. We, we think about it a lot. Um, the, so the appeals process, uh, the way that it works is that... Um, so the, the government has a right of what's called interlocutory appeal, so they can appeal certain types of questions while the military commission proceeding is going on. And that appeal goes to the Court of Military Commission Review. And then decisions by the CMCR, as we call it, are uh, reviewable by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then potentially by the Supreme Court. Um, the defense does not have an interlocutory right of appeal. Um, and so the way, you know, if the case were to go all the way through trial and, you know, and then it were to be disposed of. Um, this unusual entity called the Convening Authority, which is, um, it has the same name as a thing that exists in military justice but performs a slightly different role in our system, um, would have the initial responsibility to review the uh, decision and ensure, supposedly, that like a conviction uh, was based in fact and a correct application of the law. Um, and then 
the decision by the convening authority is appealable to the Court of Military Commission Review again, and then again to the D.C. Circuit, and then potentially eventually to the Supreme Court. But the D.C. Circuit's not cleared. Well, they don't have security clearance. It's not like a FISA court. They you don't know, it's so funny too. that you raise that because this is the conversation we have with the clerks at the D.C. Circuit every time. We, we don't have an inter, a right of interlocutory appeal, but we do have um, – the only right we have uh, to appeal anything is sort of for, for extraordinary writs, for like a writ of mandamus to stop them from doing something, you know, that could be seriously detrimental to the case. And so we filed a few of those in the past, and every time we file them – we have this discussion with the DC Circuit about, well, what are the programs? Uh, what are the headers? You know, let me check that we have somebody who can receive that information. I'm like, this is the DC Circuit, right. which <laughs> is, is the, the biggest court of. I mean, it's the main right. court of appeals. It gets pulled from people to the Supreme Court and everything. It's yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a funny conversation. I mean, uh, I you know my personal view is that the Supreme Court has sort of washed its hands of Guantanamo issues, um, and Kavanaugh would have to recuse himself anyway because he was so intimately involved in. Um, bad detainee decisions during the Bush administration, but it will cross that bridge when we get yeah. to it. But the, the short answer is yes. Um, there is a right to appeal. It would go to the second level fake court, the Court of Military Commission's review, um, before we got to the D.C. Circuit. Let me talk about fair trial. And, and this is one thing that really interested me. I, I know a little bit about your client, just from knowing about your client. Um, but I tried to do as much research as I could for this because I, you know, I try to be obsessively prepared. And what I found really interesting was there's a mixture of two types of articles on Amaro Bellucci. One where essentially he like he's already been convicted. Yeah. One is a list of what he did, and I'm putting air quotes around what he did because it's as though he's already been convicted of doing all these things. So if you took the time and read the first five or six Googleable articles on him, including Wikipedia, it was a laundry list of the stuff he did. Again. Not the stuff he's alleged with alleged. Well, no, I mean, but they don't present it that way, right? right? It's, it's right. A straight up. This is what he did. He funded this. He made these phone calls. He did this Western Union transfer. He was involved. And there's a lot of guilt by family members, which we'll talk about in a second. So what I found really interesting about that is, of course, you have all these articles and then other articles about Zero Dark Thirty. Right. And I'm wondering how much you want to murder the director as night as wonderful as she can be and as popular as that movie was because Amara Bellucci was the guy in the first 25 minutes of Zero Dark Thirty who was being waterboarded and tortured and then of course it looked as though that led directly to good information yeah which is utterly actionable. false yeah. utterly false now you know what in my view Catherine Bigelow um, committed and Mark Bull committed a serious breach of public trust with that movie um, and it is something that we have never fully gotten over for two reasons. The first is that movie is a complete piece of CIA propaganda. I mean, and we know now, right? We know through journalists like Jason Leopold, we have the documents showing that the CIA saw this as an opportunity to influence public opinion in advance of the release of the Senate torture report because they knew that most of America would rather see a movie where, you know, so-called bad guys get tortured you know, and that would tell their story for them. And that's not just Leopold saying that. The CIA no. has basically come out and confirmed that. It's the that CIA they, yeah, documents work, that say that. They work that. directly yeah. with the uh, director. Exactly. Um, and, you know, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull took that narrative and ran with it, you know, just to, in, in the interest of getting an Oscar, which I'm happy to say they didn't. So, you know, that's the first thing. But the second thing is really that that portrayal in Zero Dark Thirty and combined with what you what you just talked about, the sort of... Uh, foregone conclusions about Amar have not gone unnoticed by both 
well, everybody in America, right, who who asks us, when they say, why is this taking so long? They mean, these guys are guilty. Why right. aren't they already convicted, right? Because that's the impression. And secondly, by the international community who take the opposite tack, right? Like the United Nations and specifically human rights agencies within the United Nations, like the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, have specifically examined Amar's case. They have looked specifically at what happened to Amar, when he was picked up, what happened since then, what his treatment was, how long he's been at Gitmo, and the propaganda, including Zero Dark Thirty, and have said there's no way he can get a fair trial right. at this point. Which is extraordinary because, I mean, look, I, I'll be perfectly honest. I've looked at the kind of what is considered the evidence in, in all the... And it looks as though, it, it, we haven't mentioned this, his uncle is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Yeah. His cousin is Ramzi Youssef, who was the guy convicted for the 1993 bombing. He, you know, he's potentially married, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, dang it. You're not going to say it because it's, you don't want to say it. Um, the woman, there's a woman who was arrested for trying to shoot up a bunch of people that was theoretically his wife. Anyway, even right. if that's it's not the true. The story of that, yeah. of, of, of that particular, I'm not confirming the connection, yes. but the story of that particular woman is worth its own podcast. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, it's mean, fascinating. It's a fascinating and so, story. And so looking at this, let's say I would look at it and go, okay, from what I've read, maybe not a Boy Scout. My, the point that you're making is really interesting in the fact that no matter what he did or didn't do, allegedly did or whatever legal verbiage you want to use, what happened after he was arrested makes it almost impossible if you wanted a law and order, let's put him in prison because he deserves to go, deserves to go in prison because he planned 9-11. He was the mastermind. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed didn't do anything. I'm making this up. We can't do that the right way right. because of the way things have gone since he was picked up, which, you know, to me is just, you know, the worst, if you care about justice being done for 9-11 is one of the most problematic things that I see from all of this. Completely. And, you know, Ben pointed out earlier that, um, that the government should have been ready to put on this case, but, you know, really back in 2008, right? Like if you're just talking about, we want to prove that Amar made this financial transaction and this financial transaction to this hijacker and this hijacker, like they, that information was available to them early on, right? So what they're doing now in 2019 is starting to put tidbits of that information on the table. They have still not proven, which is their job, that he actually did any of this. But what they're doing now is they're putting tidbits of that information on the table and then invoking national security privilege over them and saying, yeah, here, uh, here's our evidence that Amar made that financial transaction, but you're not allowed to ask any questions about where we got that evidence. Well, I mean, just some of the government misconduct, and this is documented government misconduct from all these trials is extraordinary. Listening devices, they've bugged things in meeting rooms where where lawyers are meeting with their client. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, I don't again, I don't care. You don't need to be a, a you know, a civil libertarian or you don't need to be hardcore lefty to see that this is not the way justice is done in this country. The remote court audio kill switch, the judge order removed. My the favorite FBI is the informants. Yeah, well, I was saying the FBI recruiting defense team informants, which was supposed to be over, but it just apparently, a paralegal at Fort Hood was being harassed and whatever by the FBI in that, well, he was part of the, he used to be part of the defense team to try to give information about like your plans. That's Banana Republic shit, right? That's, and this is not, again, people want to blame whatever administration's in charge. This didn't just start in January of 2017. This is not brand new. Yeah, this is fully bipartisan. Right, right. This is fully bipartisan. This is not bad, you know, Trump bad. This is this is what's going on 
over the last decade trying to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre. Um, and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the not in our case, but in um, the case about the USS Coal bombing, uh, that case came has come completely unglued. Uh, and it, the beginning, the inception of it coming apart uh, had entirely to do with um, the, like, these sorts of attorney-client and ethical concerns. Uh, and, you know, that's not where it ended up, but uh, in a just bizarre, like, it, like, it's not, we're not, the ethical concerns that we face are not limited to and like, I mean, this isn't hyperbole, but not limited to the government spying or potentially spying on defense attorneys. We're also talking about a situation, at least in, in the Cole case and in some other cases, where the judges, the people who are making decisions about what evidence the defense gets to use and how trial is going to proceed, are actively pursuing, pursuing professional positions, career positions, with the Justice Department, who <laughs> is litigating in front of the judge and, and not disclosing it. And so, you, you know, with the, the Cole case in particular, um, it comes out that the, the judge has pursued a job with the Justice Department, not because the judge disclosed it, which was his ethical obligation, uh, and not because the government the prosecution in that case decided, realized that what had happened and turned over evidence. No, the judge refused to acknowledge it. The prosecution refused to turn over evidence about it. And what happened was that Carol Rosenberg, the attorney for the, or the uh, reporter. <laughs> she'd be, she could oh, be she's going to be so mad at you. <laughs> I know. Uh, the reporter for the New York Times, and, and at the time, the Miami, Miami Herald, Herald yeah. had filed a FOIA request based on a photograph that I think the AP ran yeah. of of Judge, Judge Spath, who was the Cole judge, uh, Cole case judge, shaking hands with uh, Attorney General Sessions at an induction ceremony for new immigration judges. Uh, and it turned out that this, for two and a half years, the judge had been uh, pursuing employment. So any, anyway. He, he submitted his own decision yeah, right. in the Nishiri case as a writing sample. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious! So right. embarrassing. And so, but the, the like the failings here persist, right? The CMCR said there's nothing to see here. The government doesn't need to turn over any discovery, right? So the the attorneys in that case then pursued uh, this issue up to the DC Circuit through the procedure that Alka described earlier, a uh, petition for writ of mandamus. And in that time period, the FOIA came back to Carroll. And there were all these documents demonstrating just how long Judge Bath had been pursuing this job and what he was doing, including using the uh, uh, writing sample. And the D.C. Circuit says, you're nuts. Like, this is, this is outrageous. You can't do this. You, gotta, you have to live up to your ethical obligations. You have to tell people when you're pursuing jobs. And by the way, you guys can go back two and a half years and start from scratch, more or less. Right. So this case has come completely included, and it's just one manifestation of the the ethical difficulties we face. Well, it's clear that, I mean, openness might be something that could change things. I read, you did a, there was a hearing on January 29th of this year. I read a transcript of you in front of the judge, Alka, um, really arguing for more openness and for more transparency. Yeah. Um, bringing up several court cases, um, but that were very specific to this, that should have applied, it seems, to you know, being able to protect people and understanding national security was at risk here. But at the same time, you know, the, the more open you are, the less likely it is that I, 
I read this stuff, and again, I walked into this thinking these guys were guilty. I probably still do. Mm-hmm. But even if they're convicted, I'm going to be like, like this is. I mean, I can't feel confident that justice is done, even if they are convicted, because of the shenanigans going on, but also because all of this is being done in secret. Right. The point is to protect the process, right? I mean, every day we have trials in normal courts in the United States that are publicized where you do think, oh, you know, this person is guilty or that person is guilty. You see it all the time where the media and the public have prejudged uh, the guilt or innocence of someone. And so in those cases, you take extra steps to protect the process, to sort of sequester people and to not put allow the... CIA to put out propaganda about the people and to, you know, to make sure that the defense has all the tools that they need and to not slur the defense in public as terrorist sympathizers, which has happened. Um, you know, you, you protect the process as much as possible. And what we've seen at Guantanamo is the opposite of that. I mean, you've seen the government, three governments in, in succession now, uh, Democrats and Republicans, actively corrupting the process. What made me laugh out loud in kind of a manana, man, man, uh, ridiculous laughter was the interpreter thing. No. Which is insane from earlier this year, where uh, maybe I'm going to get this wrong, but you can correct me, obviously, where an interpreter that was being used for the trials was recognized as working for the CIA back during the time period that these guys were being picked up. So what happened was, yeah, so in, in 2015, at a at the beginning of yet another hearing, um, Ramzi bin al-Sheba uh, spoke on the record and said, and he said that he recognized this interpreter um, from his time in the RDI program. Over the next three and a half years, <laughs> because everything takes a long time, the government eventually uh, conceded that, yes, this individual had been employed previously by the CIA and very recently uh, declassified the fact that this individual was actually employed in the RDI program. And so um, we have been fighting now for four years, more than four years, to get a deposition, to get testimony from this person, because if this, there are two sort of two baskets of questions, right? The first is, how the hell did you end up on a defense team? Right. Right? Like, what made you, if you did this on your own, what made you think this is a good idea, right? Having been involved in the RDI program that tortured these men, is a good idea to now volunteer or apply to be on their defense team? Or was it just his idea? Was it someone else's idea? We don't know, right? Right, but you could easily, I mean, I look at it and go, he's a plant. Yeah, right? well, I mean, certainly, yeah, right? I, and knowing the history enough, of these, right? yeah. Yeah. Knowing the histories of the of these cases, the fact the government's already acknowledged, you know, listening devices and placing informants and all that, it's not that much of a stretch. I always say, like, my, my, you know, my family is always like, you know, don't be a conspiracy theorist. I'm like, we literally live in some of the biggest conspiracies that have happened since 9-11. Um, but so there's that basket of questions. But then the other basket is now that they've acknowledged that he was part of the RDI, RDI program, it makes him a witness to what happened in the RDI right. program, which is really, really important, not only for our case in chief as to the voluntariness of some of the statements that these guys made that the government wants to use against them to convict them, but also to in mitigation as to what happened to these guys. Well, also, I mean, from my perspective, he's kind of a magical witness in that he doesn't really have a dog in the fight. Right. He's not one of the detainees who you could argue is making up what happened to them, as they certainly have done that. And he's not one of the interrogators who is going to say, you know, you could say they're going to say whatever they want to at this point. He's kind of an impartial viewer. I mean, he's kind of the fly on the wall in this case because he doesn't really have, a, you know, a point of view either way. Yeah. It might be the first time we can get an unbiased view of what actually took place 
inside some of these interrogation rooms. Yeah, that 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 would be our hope. Now, he did sort of lie extensively when we asked him if he'd ever <laughs> worked for the CIA. Um, but, you know, we understand that there's an issue with, you know, he doesn't want his, his identity revealed right. and there are threats to his security and we want to make sure that he's safe as well. Like, everybody wants to make sure that he's safe. But at the same time, he's got important information for this case. We've talked about interrogations. Let me ask you about, there's a hearing less than a month ago, September 17th, to consider the admissibility of what they're calling clean team evidence, yeah. which is a wonderful euphemism. Again, great propaganda. Yeah, it's just a wonderful euphemism for this idea of, you know, I'll let you explain. I'm not going to do it. So, Ben, we can explain a little bit about what this means because I just don't see how this is possible. Sure. So I think the, um, you know, as Alka was describing earlier, the, you know, at the, in 2006 when these guys were brought out of the CIA dungeons, around the world, the black sites, and brought to Guantanamo, and President Bush announced the decision to put them on trial. The government was faced with this question of, you know, how do we put on on trial people who we've tortured? And so somebody came up with the idea that the way that, that we could do this is, you know, we will, we, the U.S. government will reinterrogate all these people that we've been torturing, interrogating for, you know, three or more years um, with the idea of, you know, given some amount of time and um, and move to a new location, that this new interrogation by um, a combined FBI and criminal investigative task force team would be clean. It wouldn't. It, it, all the statements could be usable and admissible in court, and um, and we get convictions easily. The problem that we are well, the problem that the prosecution has run into is that the team won clean. Um, <laughs> and that the fact is that we are now in this process, uh, this like fairly exhaustive and onerous process of putting on a uh, hearing to suppress the uh, so-called uh, clean statements um, by really examining how those statements came about um, the process by which the interviews were set up, uh, the conditions of confinement, the way that the guys were treated, uh, the duration of the time they were treated, and the um, the interagency yeah. linkages yeah. Um, that predated uh, the statements and ran all the way through the time that the statements were collected and uh, continue today. Yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, I can give you some examples. Like, look, you know, what I said earlier is um, that there, this program was never intended to be a, a process for justice, right? It was to collect what we consider to be intelligence. Um, and it was using these methods that were sus suspect at best and torture at worst. And so at the end of this process, the process itself, a lot of people who, who know a little bit about the CIA program, know that the two psychologists who sort of engineered the program, Mitchell and Justin, came up with this theory of, that they sort of, um, that they kind of bastardized this theory of learned helplessness, where you use these techniques and in a nutshell, you create this learned helplessness in the guys that uh, basically dictates that when they're, when, when they're asked questions, they understand, like, they're helpless. Right. That there's nothing they can do, they have to answer the questions, right? And so, there's this inherent tension because Mitchell and Jessen claim that they were very successful in this program. And everybody from the CIA who's involved, have, has said, everybody who's on the record, say, this was very successful. We definitely succeeded in instilling learned helplessness. The problem with that is if you have actually been successful in instilling learned helplessness, 
there is no change of location or change right, of no people. There's no magic that makes that it is, go away. Exactly. Yeah. You're help, you're helpless, you're helpless, especially after three and a half years of literally continuous torture, right? Like Amar was sleep deprived for two and a half of the three and a half years continuously. So, you know, you get to that point. And the second half of that story is the, as Ben said, the FBI-CIA connections. And what we now know is public, right, which we have been pushing. Again, this is another reason for the delay. We knew there was collaboration between the FBI and CIA. We just didn't know how much. 2018, the prosecution comes to us and says, okay, right, you know, you know how we said there wasn't any collaboration? Um, we're going to give you some, some information. We now have tens of thousands of, do- of pages since May 2018 that they've given us documenting in great detail the collaboration between the FBI and the CIA for the duration of the CIA torture program. And the witnesses that we had um, just a couple of weeks ago included the FBI agents who were part of this so-called clean team who interrogated Amar in January 2007. Turns out those two FBI agents had been intimately involved in creating questions, writing questions to be sent to the CIA, to the black sites, to get answers from Amar. Those answers were then sent back from the CIA, those those answers, right, which were taken under conditions of torture, sent back to the FBI. The FBI used that to to further their investigation into 9-11. So all the information that these two people had when they got to Gitmo to re-interrogate Amar was based off of their torture. Wait, it's not like you brought somebody in that had no background in the case, no anything. What's extraordinary to me is the fact that they basically are admitting that all the stuff they did before was complete garbage when it comes to the, any kind of real prosecutable information. I think, like you said, it was intelligence collection, not necessarily right. building a case. But, but they this still is a, want to be able to use the fruits of it. Right. Right. Yeah. They still want to be able to execute them based on that information. And that's what I would, goes back to what we were saying before. You can't have it both ways. It's, it's sort of like, you know, they, they were faced with this knot of information, right? And instead of untangling the knot, which would have been impossible, they just sort of like tried to glaze over it and make it look like a smooth piece <laughs> yeah. of thread. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, the wax, the glaze is coming off um, right. over time. And, you know, we are seeing the truth of the situation, which is what, as Alka said, we long suspected. Yeah. Now, there are going to be another, there's going to be another six to eight months of witnesses at a minimum right. on this ex- exact question. The Mitchell Jensen are coming to testify in February, January and February. I know. That's, that's what should be interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, this is happening now, actually quickly, quote unquote, where there's a lot happening all at once. And so hopefully we can have you guys back in a little while to talk about how this case is pushing forward and how all this is happening. I want to ask you one last more philosophical question about this. I, we've seen throughout people's perceptions of 9-11 and other things change over time. And the, the ability, I look at kind of the NSA, where people were very willing and, and ready to let the NSA do whatever the hell it wanted to in 2002, 2003, 2004. Obviously that changed by the time Snowden came out and there's a big backlash against it. Kind of where the line moves. I mean, Michael Hayden's book talks a lot about this. Mm-hmm. Kind of public perception of the threat is what the public is willing to allow the government to do. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, as time goes along, the possibility of a fairer trial becomes more likely, not less likely. What I mean by that is there's less emotion, there's more chance of objectivity, there's more opportunity for the people sitting on the jury. Maybe even not to remember 9-11 and we're getting to that point. point. Now, I mean, if you put you put a first lieutenant on the jury, that person might have been like three years old when 9-11 happened. The guards at Gitmo are already almost too young. Well, that's, I mean, the the Onion had that joke from a couple years ago that they're having to open a geriatric ward at Gitmo and now they're having to. And so 
perhaps, I mean, in waxing philosophic about this, I mean, are you seeing to where there's much less emotion involved in this than there was perhaps a decade ago? This is where the lawyers are literally going, what can I say? No, because, you know, I, I think it goes both ways. Yeah. Um, I think that this is going to sound extremely uncharitable to the prosecution, and I don't really mean it that way. Um, it's just a statement of fact. The biggest thing in the prosecution's favor is that emotion, um, is that sort of... And, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not real emotion. Yeah. Um, you know, again, like, when they show those videos in the courtroom, it's emotional for everyone, uh, including us, including the gallery, including the victim family members who are sitting there. And it's emotional for us to see the reactions of the victim family members who are there. So in terms of, you know, is there less emotion? Um, there can be. And certainly I think that the victim family members feel when they come down to Guantanamo and they see us arguing over process and evidence and chain of custody, they feel like the emotion is gone and we don't have enough outrage. Um, both sides yeah. are, are lacking outrage about this. Um, at the end of the day, though, I don't think you're ever going to lose um, the inherent bias that, that, that the, the sort of gut punch emotion right. brings from 9-11 and the very tangible effects of that, right? More importantly, the tangible effects, right. which are the process itself, the fact that we set up these commissions precisely to be outside of the Constitution. We set up the rules, you know, the Congress wrote the rules precisely to avoid the rules of evidence. Um, those are, those are, those were all based on emotion. And you can't get out of all of that now. Right. Well, I mean, Ben, let me ask you, I mean, this, this question, same question, we go back to the very beginning, kind of one of the first questions I asked. I imagine if you were defending these guys in 2003, 2004, if they had been picked up at that point, you might have a very different reaction. From friends and family and those around you because such how the rawness of the moment really would have played out yeah so I, I think that that may be right but my hope is that that's not right and that you know the sort of understanding that a fair trial is necessary would have prevailed but one of the things it's, it's not quite a motion but one of the things that is related to the passage of time and one of the challenges we face really cuts against us and you know, in 2002, 2003, I think those of us who are old enough to remember 9-11 and sort of remember what the world looked like on the 10th of September 2001 versus the 12th of September 2001, we would have had a jury or, you know, the, the panel that we'll eventually have of soldiers who can remember being in the armed forces mm -hmm. at a time where they were not at war and they can remember what not being at war looked like. And now we, it's very likely that we will have panel members, and maybe an entire panel if we ever get that far, of officers who cannot recall what it was like not to be at war, and, and not to be at war specifically with Al-Qaeda. And one of our challenges and one of our defenses is that the military commission is a, is a war court. It's a military tribunal. It's uh, tied to the laws of war. It has no jurisdiction over persons or subject matter that uh, for events that occurred outside of an armed conflict. We argue, uh, and I think we're on very firm legal ground, factual ground, that there was no armed conflict between the United States and Al-Qaeda before the 7th of October 2001. The problem is that if we've got folks who you know, don't remember 10 September 2001 or 6 October 2001 and who have only 
known their time in service mm -hmm. as pointing their weapon downrange at somebody from Al-Qaeda, convincing them that there was a time before an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda is shouting at the rain. Right. We've already mentioned Carol Rosenberg as kind of the person who has been following this since the very beginning with the yeah. Miami Herald. Where else can people go to find out information? I know it's not a lot out there, but find good information about what's going on at, during these Guantanamo trials. Um, one good source other than Carol is Gitmo Watch, which is the Twitter handle um, that uh, members of the defense uh, uh, use during the hearings. Um, and that provides, you know, we tries to provide a sort of verbatim of what's blow by blow of what's happening uh, during the hearings. Um, the other thing that is brand new is a new feed, live, almost live feed on a 40 second delay from Gitmo um, to the Pentagon. And that is supposed to be for greater public access to these hearings. Um, now, the issue is that you can't currently go without an escort, a uh, Pentagon-cleared escort, but I'm happy to say that at least members, I can speak for our legal team, members of our legal team um, would be happy to make ourselves available to escort um, members of the public who would like to come and watch what's happening at Guantanamo, particularly during this, these next sets of hearings when we're talking about um, the taint of the government's evidence. Well, Alka, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the SpyCast. We, we hope to have you back in a, in a bit when yeah. things have kind of evolved from where they are today, but we really appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks so much, us. Vince. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.